This morning we are heading back to Romans 9, so go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're heading back to Romans 9. If you have a Bible around you, go ahead and grab it off the chair there. Open up your app. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 945. Uh, Romans 9, we are, as they say, swimming at the deep end of the pool. Uh, Romans 9 is, um, uh, is fairly deep and complex theological territory. Uh, it takes careful reading and careful study to navigate it. And um, these are complex and challenging truths um, that don't seem immediately practical, right? You don't read Romans 9 and go, hey, I got some great takeaways um, for myself. But they are foundationally important to our understanding of the gospel. And they are critical to Paul's argument as he develops his, uh, his thought in addressing um, the, uh, the Jewish readers. Uh, I wasn't planning on sharing this story, but it, I just decided to. Um, so Romans 9, I think a lot of people use it a little bit like a club. That, it's one of those passages that, that people often refer to as a hammer verses, right? It's, it's what people throw out there when they want to, hey, I've got these great verses and I'm going to beat you down. Um, my first experience with that was actually with me. I did that um, before I was even a Christian. I, we had moved down to Southern California, and my mom enrolled me in a Christian school to keep me out of trouble because I was getting into quite a bit of that at that point. And um, I was more interested in literature than anything. I was reading voraciously, nothing that was assigned to me in school, um, but everything that seemed interesting to me. Thankfully, I had an English teacher that saw that and uh, worked with me. Um, and uh, he was an awesome mentor. Uh, but over the course of that, I had been introduced to some thoughts from Romans 9. I didn't even know where they came from, but I was in a Bible class with uh, a guy that was actually the baseball coach. Um, funny how Christian schools sometimes do that. They're like, coach needs to do something. Let's put him in Bible. And so he was teaching Bible. Now, I don't know if any of this is accurate because in my 15 or 16 year old brain this is how it happened but doesn't mean how it's actually how it happened but in in my memory of that classroom event the teacher was up there being very kind of uh, challenging like God is love and if you don't believe God is love you're stupid that's that's how I remember it I don't know if that's what he actually said um, but in order to encourage the class and edify my neighbors uh, I said hey you know I'm just curious because I think somewhere in the Bible it says Jacob have I loved Esau have I hated doesn't doesn't God hate and, he, and he, he didn't like that. Um, and I didn't really know where it was from. I'm like, hey, I'll go find out where it is. I went to talk to my English teacher, and my English teacher was like, yeah, that's actually in the Bible. Let me show you. And I went back. Um, and, and my whole point in bringing that up, obviously, was not to edify my teacher, but to challenge him. And I think that's how a lot of people come to Romans 9. Uh, they, they pull verses out to win arguments or to challenge people, not necessarily to understand more about God. And so my hope for us as we dig into this is that we are going to dig in, not necessarily to, to figure out how to balance our budget, how to live uh, more successful Christian leadership lives, but, but how to understand God. And in understanding God, understanding better how to relate to Him, love Him, respond to Him, and grow in the grace that He provides. These chapters deal with the deep topic of election, God's sovereignty worked out through the affairs of human history and human choices. These are big issues. The context, though, just to remind you, Paul is not bringing this up purely because he liked to talk about it. This isn't his little, uh, you know, hey, I'm going to go down this rabbit trail just because uh, I feel like it. It's going to be a fun little side trip. 
uh, it was necessary because, as we saw last week, Paul's Jewish readers were having some really, really deep struggles and big questions about the things that we've already studied in Romans 1 through 8, right? This idea that, that salvation is free, that, that we can receive forgiveness by grace through faith, that, that anybody can be a child of Abraham if they simply have the faith of Abraham. Anybody can receive the blessing of Abraham by simply believing in the seed of Abraham, the son of Abraham, who was Jesus. So the Jewish community had deep struggles with this. Didn't, didn't God promise special blessings to the physical descendants of Abraham? Didn't he say that, that the children of Abraham would be blessed and that all the world would be blessed through them? The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were they not called in Zechariah 2.8 the apple of God's eye? How could the apple of God's eye not continue to be preeminent in the plan of God? Were they not chosen by God, elect by God, to be a blessing by God? How could they not also be blessed by God? Paul's going to answer those questions over the course of these chapters. He's going to say, yes, Israel was elect by God. But while they are elect to honor, they are not entitled to blessing. So let's take a look at our uh, verses this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, Romans 9, verses 1 through 13. Okay, so I'm going to read these. Please follow along in your Bibles. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. But I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved but Esau have I hated. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, Paul starts the chapter by mourning. Like, it's an interesting switch, man. Romans 8 was this glorious chapter of triumph and celebration, of, of God's glory shining out through our suffering. And then you, you immediately get to Romans 9, and, and he starts this chapter by mourning that his Jewish family isn't embracing the Savior along with him. And it's pretty dramatic, right? I mean, the way Paul words it. Uh, verse 1. Verse 1, Paul tells us that he's telling the truth three times 
in different ways, right? He's like, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. If he's coming across a little defensive, um, yeah, I think it, it may be because he is. Um, I, I think that, that uh, he doubts that his Jewish readers necessarily trust his sincerity. Um, but he is making it clear, I know some of you are going to doubt me. I know some of you think that, that I have it out for you, that, I, that in my teaching somehow I've, I've turned against the law and turned against my own heritage and turned against my own people because I don't celebrate the same things you celebrate and I don't use the same language you use. But he's saying, I am sincere. In verses 2 through 4, he says, I am sincere that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. He's like, I love my Jewish family. I love my Jewish heritage so much that if I could be cut off from the grace of God in a way that would actually result in their being grafted in, I would do it. I would set aside my own good for theirs. He's not saying it is possible. It's not. He's not saying that this is something he specifically has prayed for. What he's trying to do is reveal his heart. That he's that passionate, that much um, enamored and in love with his people, with his heritage. As, as hard as he can be on them as much as he can challenge them, as, as much as he says things that infuriate them and he knows is going to offend them. He does it all in love. He does it because he loves them. He does it because even though he knows his very words are going to often end up in him being rejected and accused, he's motivated by love. So he's willing to suffer a bad reputation. He's willing to suffer their accusations. He is willing to have many in the Jewish community rise up against him and accuse him of many things he didn't do. That they might be saved. That they might hear the truth. Now this is, a, this is no empty uh, worry on his part. Um, at this point, he hopes to go to Rome. Remember, he's writing to Rome so that he can go to Spain and continue his work. He is going to go to Rome, but he's going to go to Rome as a prisoner, having been accused by his Jewish brethren in Jerusalem um, and, uh, of insurrection. And, and so he has many enemies because he is willing to challenge their power and their position, their comfort and their privilege. He continually challenges their sense of superiority and entitlement. <laughs> if you want to annoy people, do that, like continually. Just challenge their sense of entitlement. Challenge their sense of, of in, you know, like, I'm, I deserve comfort or I deserve my, my blessing. I de you, you know? So he did it, but he did it out of love, right? But he does it because he understands how important the grace of God actually is. In verses 4 through 5, he lists um, some of the things that, that they the Jewish readers would take tremendous pride in and feel a sense of superiority about, but also things that are genuine markers of, of blessing, right? 
He says, they are Israelites. That one stands at the, the, the lead, the first in the list, right? Things that are, are true blessings, but also points of unhealthy pride. They are Israelites. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses the word Israelites. He hasn't used this word up to this point in the letter. He has talked about the Jew and the Gentile. And, and, um, and to switch to Israelite is a way of switching the language that focuses not so much on their racial heritage as much as on their covenant identity. To speak of them as Israelites is to speak of them as God's covenant people, right? There are three primary patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham was given the promise of God that, that he would have a son who would bless the entire world, who would be blessed by God, and that he would be the father of a great nation as numerous as the sands of the seashore and the stars of heaven. And Abraham gave birth to Isaac, or Sarah did. Uh, he fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob was renamed Israel. That was the path, the, the lineage of the blessing uh, that God gave to Abraham. To be an Israelite was to be a child of that covenant blessing. So Paul goes on from there to list some of the many blessings that were unique to the Israelites as he goes through. Um, they are Israelites in verse 4. To them belong the adoption. He's speaking there of, of the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, it speaks of them being a son to God, having been adopted as, as a, a unique son out of all of the, of the ethnic groups of the world, right? Uh, the glory, there it's speaking of the honor that covered them uh, uniquely as God's covenant people, right? They were given the covenants, and there it's a reference to simply having had the honor that, that God, out of all the nations of the earth, chose them. I will make covenants with you, Abraham. I will make covenants with you, Isaac. I will make covenants with you, Jacob and David. The giving of the law, uh, the Old Testament law, the Torah, the point at which the Jews took their greatest pride was a unique covenant between God and the nation of Israel. Right When we read the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, we often think, oh, this is God's covenant with humanity. It was not. It was God's covenant with Israel. It was a very specific covenant made with a very specific people over a very specific period of time. They were the ones honored to have received the law. They were given the worship, which there refers to the temple service and sacrifice. Um, the temple was in Jerusalem their capital. Before that, the tabernacle traveled with them. They were the people honored out of all the peoples of the earth to, to carry with them the temple, the meeting place where God, his Shekinah glory, would meet with man. And they were given the promises, the series of promises through the Old Testament that led to the greatest fulfillment of the promise, the Messiah himself. And that leads to these final blessings to them belong the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ all of those blessings all of those honors led to a very specific result that through Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, through the generations that followed, through the lineage of the blessings of God, came Christ. Jesus was born not just a generic human. <laughs> he was born a Jew. He, he had a specific lineage. He was a son of David. He, he 
was in the covenant line. God had chosen this specific lineage to actually give birth to Christ. And it's not just, listen to how Paul phrases it. I mean, it's pretty amazing. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It's one of the strongest statements in the New Testament about the deity of Christ. God honored Israel by becoming human as a child of Israel. God honored the covenant people by actually entering humanity as one of his covenant people. God became flesh, but not just generic flesh. He became an Israelite. He was a Jew born under the law that he might fulfill the law. And he is blessed forever. Amen. As Paul thinks about these incredible honors that God has bestowed on the nation of Israel, he has led to a benediction, this proclamation of blessing to God for his wisdom, his goodness, and his mercy. Paul sees the nation of Israel as honored, uniquely honored above every other nation of the earth. But as you might anticipate, there is a but coming, right? Take a look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. All of this is true, Paul says. All of this is true. God has honored Israel above every other nation. And God's covenant is with the nation of Israel. But as he looks around, Jesus has come, God in the flesh. And he was crucified because his covenant people didn't receive their covenant God. The nation of Israel didn't recognize or want God in the flesh. The seed of Abraham came to the children of Abraham, and the children of Abraham chose instead their structures of privilege and power, their sense of self-importance, their moral self-improvement projects over a God who deconstructed everything they thought was valuable in life in order to give them everything that truly was. So Paul looks around at his brethren, he looks around at the Jewish people, and the reality is at this stage, we see an explosion of people believing in Jesus, but they are predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish believers. There are Jewish believers, but at this point, they're a minority. The nation of Israel is not seeing a, a, a rapid and incredible response to the good news of Jesus. What they are seeing is, in fact, an increased um, hardening and rejection. And so Paul asks the question that he knows his readers are going to ask. Has the word of God failed? God made this covenant promise with the nation of Israel. God created Israel, right? God, God is the one who actually miraculously gave Abraham uh, the son Isaac, and then from Isaac gave, gave Jacob, and, and, and God is the one that created this entire ethnic line. And now we see them hardened. Has the word of God failed? He says, no. 
The Word of God has not failed. God has not failed with His promises and His intentions. Why? Because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham are children of Abraham. In other words, there are, in a sense, two overlapping circles that are called the children of Abraham, one of the physical descendants and one of the spiritual. There are those who carry the DNA of their father, and there are those who carry the faith of their father. And both, Paul says, are descendants of Abraham, but they're not the same. Not everyone who was born in the physical lineage of promise is entitled to the blessings of that promise. To prove his point, Paul goes back uh, to look at the birth of Isaac and Jacob, uh, the two generations that followed Abraham. In verse 7, Paul quotes Genesis 2.12, where he says, um, "Through through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Um, Abraham had two sons uh, at this point. Uh, one with Hagar, uh, who was Sarah's handmaiden. Um, and then he was going to have one with Sarah, Isaac. So he had two sons. And, and Paul's point is this, that, that even though Abraham had two physical descendants, the promise did not pass equally through both. God chose to pass the promise of the blessing through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Ishmael, I want you to know, was blessed. When you go back and read the account, um, God promised to make Ishmael a mighty nation. It wasn't that Ishmael wasn't blessed. It was that Ishmael wasn't chosen for the covenant relationship to pass through his line. Even though God blessed him, God did not elect him for this purpose. He instead chose Isaac. Right? Verses 8 and 9. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. In other words, not all the physical descendants of Abraham, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, I don't know if you remember the story, but at this point, Abraham is about 100 years old and Sarah's 99. She is past menopause. She is past childbearing years. And yet, God fulfills his promise. He miraculously gives them a child. And that child is Isaac. God makes it clear that the path of his blessing is not dependent on people. People are dependent on his path of the blessing. His election isn't responsive to human situations. Human situations are the result of his election. God is the one who chooses. Not all physical descendants, that's Paul's point, of Abraham are entitled to the promise. Now, to take it further, Paul says that the same principle is actually clear with the birth of Jacob as well, not just Isaac, but Jacob in verses 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Rebekah is with Isaac, our forefather, uh, one man, our forefather Isaac, 
Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. We'll come back to the, the, that final, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated in a moment. But Paul's making it clear. <clears throat> the, the path of election was not dependent on physical lineage or parentage, right? If you thought somehow God chose Isaac because somehow Sarah was superior to Hagar, well, let's clear that up. Here we've got Isaac and we've got Rebecca. One guy, one woman, one pregnancy, right? Two kids, twins, before they were born, before they could do anything right or wrong, before they could do anything to influence the choice of God, God chose. God chose Jacob, the younger, which was counterintuitive and, in fact, the opposite of what would have been expected. In that culture, it was the oldest son who always inherited the blessing. And God's like, mm, I'm going to challenge your assumption." your cultural assumptions. He, he does everything so counterintuitively. He is continually surprising in his choices. You think I should choose? No, nope, I'm going to choose this. You think I should go? Nope, I'm going to go this way. He chooses Jacob, the younger of the two. Why? Paul says to make it very, very clear that God's election rests on nothing more than his pleasure. God is sovereign. And God decides. Not in response to humanity, but in initiation toward humanity. God is not waiting to find out what humans will do and then trying to figure out how to clean it up. God is telling his story through the story of humanity. He is initiating through his elective purposes. He decrees, and once he decrees, he moves. God chose Jacob, not because he was better, not because he offered God more. He made his choice before they had done anything, good or bad. He made his choice not because of anything they thought or did or they were. He made his choice purely because it was an expression of his sovereign will. God's making it clear, I am not responding to you, you are responding to me. My will isn't contingent on your choices or expectations, it is only contingent on my plan. They were chosen to be honored. But this is what you need to catch. They were chosen to be honored, but they were not entitled to be blessed. What do we do with verse 13? We're going to come back to that point. But what do we do with verse 13? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Um, this is a, a verse that I think a lot of people wrestle with with good reason, right? Because we're told that God is love, that his very nature is love. It's not that just God loves something he does. He is, in fact, the essence of love, the experience, the eternal experience of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternally, knowing and being known, loving and being loved, honoring and being honored, right? God is love. And, and we were created 
to love God in response to his love and to love one another. That's part of, that's actually the essence of what it means to image God, is, is to continually respond to the love of God and move out in the initiation of love toward others. Love is the essence of who God is. How can a God of love hate? Is this a contradiction? Can a God of love in his sovereignty hate override his own nature, change his own wiring. It seems wrong. It gets even more complicated, though. I'll let you know that. It, it gets even more wrong because God had actually commanded the Israelites not to hate Esau. Esau was going to be the father of an entire nation called the Edomites. And God commanded the Israelites and told them, you can't hate them. You don't get to. You do not get to abhor them, right? In Deuteronomy 23, 7, it says this, you shall not abhor an Edomite. Those are the descendants of Esau. That is the, the, the nation that came from Esau. For he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian. You will not hate the Egyptians because you were a sojourner in his land. All right, it's interesting to me that in Romans 9, there are three men mentioned. Now, there's more than three, but three critical ones. There's Israel, Jacob, there's Esau, and there's the Pharaoh, all three of which represent national entities. Jacob represents the nation of Israel, Esau represents the nation of Edom, and the Pharaoh represents the nation of Egypt, all three of which are right here at Deuteronomy 23, which would have been very familiar to his Jewish audience. All three men are mentioned, and all three are referenced in this passage, and that's because they represent three nations, Israel, Edom, and Egypt. And what God is telling the Israelites is this, you have been honored with election. God has chosen you out of all the nations of the world, but you can't feel superior toward those who were not chosen to the same honor. God didn't choose you because you're better. Your election is not an indication of somehow uh, your superiority, of, 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 of that somehow you're better, that somehow you are entitled to something that they are not. You've been honored with election, but you can't hate those who haven't. You can't abhor them or feel superior to them. So is God breaking his own command? When it says, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? No. So this is one of the areas where language becomes difficult. Remember, this was originally written in uh, Hebrew. It was then translated into Greek. Paul's quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. Uh, and it is now translated into English. And, and this is what the verse says. He's actually quoting Malachi 1.3, a verse from the Old Testament. Um, but you need to remember Malachi, the original context, this verse was written generations after Jacob and Esau were born. He's not speaking of Jacob and Esau. He is speaking of the nations that were formed out of these two men. He, he was talking about the two nations they were the fathers of. And in the language of Hebrew and in, in the idiom of the time, he's not talking about what God feels. 
he is talking about how God acted. It's very strong language to compare the actions of God, not necessarily to reveal the heart of God. Because God did choose to honor Jacob. God did elect the nation of Israel in ways that he did not elect Esau. There was an honor bestowed on that nation that was not bestowed on Edom. And God is employing an idiomatic way of comparing the honor between the two, right? It's in the same way. In, in, in Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, if you don't hate your father and your mother, you're not worthy to follow me. Well, he didn't mean you're actually supposed to hate your father and mother. What he meant was your honor for him, your, your allegiance to him should be so great, it was as if you hated your father and your mother. It's not that you're not supposed to love your father and your mother. It is that you're supposed to love God more. It's that you are to have a greater allegiance to God. What God is saying is that in his covenant relationship with Israel, he had a greater dedication to honor Israel than to Edom because Israel was going to become the lineage of God himself. God who would become flesh. God didn't hate Esau in a personal way, but he did honor Israel above Edom by electing them to be in the covenant line of the Messiah. So to bring it back, why is Paul bringing all this up? He's trying to make it clear God's word has not failed. Yes, it is true that the nation of Israel, as Paul is writing, as a whole, not every single individual, but as a generality, is not responding to the gospel, is in fact walking in rejection of the Messiah, the very Messiah that was promised to them in the Abrahamic covenant. But God's word has not failed because Israel was elected to honor. They were not entitled to blessing. They were not elected to that entitlement. They were elected to the honor. The blessing only comes to those who receive the grace extended to them as a result of the blessing. And that crosses every ethnic line. So let me just give you two points to wrap up. Um, we're going to dig into this next week. We're going to get into a little bit more of this tension of what this means on an individual level. Right now, we're talking on a national level. Next week, we're going to get into a little bit of the tension on the individual level. But I want to give you two points because anytime we talk about the sovereignty of God, there are always big philosophical questions and things to wrestle with, as there should be. The first is this. God's blessing isn't fair, but his will is always just. God's blessing isn't fair, but his will is always just. And we as Westerners hate that. Because we think everything should be fair, right? It's like we've never left middle school. Middle schoolers are obsessed with everything that's fair. You guys ever, you guys remember middle school? Been a middle school teacher? That's not fair, right? What they mean by that is he got two jelly beans and she only got one, right? That's not fair. Fair has to be equal. Everybody has to get the same exact thing, have the same exact opportunity, get the same exact experience. If it's not fair, it's not right. And we as a culture have adopted that idea and enshrined it as a cultural norm. Somehow all of life is supposed to be fair. And we all know 
First of all, life isn't fair. Um, and it gets a little, it makes us a little queasy when it's like, yeah, God's not fair either. He's not. God's blessing isn't fair. But his will is always just. Listen, election's not fair. God elected Israel. He didn't elect Edom. There's no way around that. That, that is the reality of, of God's revealed will, his work in redemptive history. God gave honor to Israel. He did not give any other nation. That's not fair. But it is just. While they were elect to be honored in this way, they were not entitled to the blessing Jesus would bring because no one is no one is entitled to blessing. That's why it's of grace. Grace is the only thing that makes this work. None of this is fair. Listen, if life were fair, we would all be in a very, very bad place. If life were fair and we got exactly what we deserved, every single one of us would wish life weren't fair. No, life isn't fair because grace isn't fair. Grace comes in and breaks what fair is, right? Karma is fair. You want karma? Every work gets you an equal and opposite response. Every bad word you say ends up with a bad thing in your life. Every bad thought ends up with an equal and, uh, and, 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 and resulting punishment. The Word of God, as we stu- studied in, in Romans 3, tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God fair is that those who have committed cosmic treason bear the penalty of having committed blasphemy against the God who created them. See, God disrupts what is fair by being just, and he does that through grace. He sent Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, that he might disrupt fair by actually bearing our punishment in our stead by breaking in and taking the result of karma that we might receive grace. That yes, the son of Isaac and of Jacob, the physical line of Israel would in fact come that all might receive the blessing. No one's entitled to it, but all can receive it because he came and suffered the just punishment that we deserve, that we might receive a grace we could never earn. See, Edom wasn't given the honor of being elect, but Edom was given the blessing of believing. There were those who were in Edom who were children of grace, just like there were those who were in the children of Israel who were not. Just because they were in the elect nation doesn't mean they were entitled to the blessing of justification. Only those who believed and received that grace by faith received that blessing. Grace isn't fair. Anyone can get it. The point that Paul is making is that God's elective purpose was to honor, not entitlement. That's the first blessing. On a corporate level. We're going to get into the personal level next week. Second thing is this. No one's entitled to God's blessing. No one is entitled to God's 
blessing. We'll get into this more next week, but Paul focuses in this chapter on, on the election of, of corporate, of, of people. His focus is on God's elective purposes worked out through human history, through nations and, and peoples, Israel, Edom, Egypt. Someone who was born, a son of Israel, was born with an inherited honor. It was an honor. He, to him belonged the patriarchs and the glory, the, the promises and the temple and the rich history of God's uh, work on earth. But they were not born, inherited, entitled to the blessing of that work. And the same is true for us today. There are those who are um, part of God's covenant people who go to church and do good works who live morally upright lives. Um, but as a, uh, an old-time preacher once said, you aren't a car just because you sit in a garage. Um, just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you're part of God's covenant community doesn't mean you're actually in the covenant of that community. Just because you do good works doesn't mean you are, in fact, responding to and growing in grace. See, there's something incredibly comforting about grace, and there's something deeply disorienting about grace. Because we all want to slip into that mindset of entitlement that somehow I deserve this when none of us do. There's only one way to become a spiritual descendant of Abraham, to become not only one who sees the beautiful covenant history of Israel, but actually receives the blessing of that covenant history, and that is to humbly, brokenly respond to the love of God with faith, to receive the gift of grace, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only those who respond to the gospel and have the faith of the father Abraham will be true sons of Abraham. It's not good enough to be just a religious person. It's not enough to do good works. You have to have the faith of our father Abraham. You have to receive grace. And the beautiful thing is, is when we come with nothing but our need, we will receive all that we could never hope or imagine we could earn or get. Because we won't simply be elect to honor. We will be elect to blessing. All right, we're going to dig into this more next week. But uh, it is, as Paul says, a beautiful, beautiful truth that God has been working through human history to make this blessing available to everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. All right, let me close this word of prayer. We're going to share communion, and uh, then we'll sing. Let me pray. Father, we don't, uh, we don't get it. <laughs> we get it, but we don't. Uh, we read the words, and, and uh, we wrestle with these, these deep truths that you are not simply a passive um, responder to human history, but an active initiator, that you aren't simply turning history 
toward a preferred outcome, you are in fact telling your story in the story of humanity, that it might be a story of redemption and restoration, a story not only of election, but a story of blessing. Lord, we thank you that that grace is available to all, that you are just and you are merciful, that you make the blessing available to any who will receive it by simply opening their hands in need and in trust. Lord, renew that simple childlike faith within us. Help us, Lord, to repent of, ah, man, our need to have so much knowledge to to compare ourselves to others, to feel superior, to judge, to do all the things that, that come when, when we start feeling entitled, when we start feeling like we deserve instead of simply rejoicing that even though we don't deserve, we are blessed. Renew our humility and enliven our faith that we might live it out in the joy of our calling. We thank you that you did become man that you might not just live a human life but you might die the death humanity needed that when you rose again we might be forgiven and made new and we thank you for that in the name of our mighty Savior Jesus Christ and all God's people said Amen